Chapter Six of the American Credo by H. L. Mencken and George Jean Nathan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The mob delight in melodramatic and cruel spectacles, thus constantly fed and fostered by the judicial arm in the United States, is also at the bottom of another familiar American phenomenon, to wit, lynching. A good part of the enormous literature of lynching is devoted to a discussion of its causes, but most of that discussion is ignorant, and some of it is deliberately mendacious. The majority of Southern commentators argue that the motive of the lynchers is a laudable yearning to protect Southern womanhood, despite the plain fact that only a very small proportion of the blackamoors hanged and burned are even so much as accused of molesting Southern womanhood. On the other hand, some of the Negro intellectuals of the North ascribe the recurrent butcheries to the southern white man's economic jealousy of the southern black, who is fast acquiring property and reaching out for the prerogatives that go therewith. Finally, certain white northerners seek a cause in mere political animosity, arguing that the southern white hates the Negro because the latter is his theoretical equal at the polls, though actually not permitted to vote. All of these notions seem to us to be fanciful. Lynching is popular in the South simply because the Southern populace, like any other populace, delights in thrilling shows, and because no other sort of show is provided by the backward culture of the region. The introduction of prize-fighting down there, or baseball on a large scale, or amusement places like Coney Island, or amateur athletic contests, or picnics like those held by the more truculent Irish fraternal organizations, or any other such wholesale devices for shocking and diverting the proletariat, would undoubtedly cause a great decline in lynching. The art is practiced in the overwhelming main, in remote and godforsaken regions, in which the only rival entertainment is offered by one-sided political campaigns, third-rate Chautauquas, and Methodist revivals. When it is imitated in the North, it is always in some drab factory or mining town. Genuine race riots, of course, sometimes occur in the larger cities, but these are always economic in origin and have nothing to do with lynching, properly so-called. One could not imagine an actual lynching at, say, Atlantic City, with ten or fifteen bands playing, blind pigs in operation up every alley, a theater in every block or two, and the boardwalk swarming with ladies of joy. Even a Mississippian, transported to such scenes, succumbs to the atmosphere of pleasure, and so has no seizures of moral rage against the poor darky. Lynching, in brief, is a phenomenon of isolated and stupid communities, a mark of imperfect civilization. It follows the hookworm and malaria belt. It shows itself in inverse proportion to the number of shoot-the-shoots, symphony orchestras, roof gardens, theaters, horse races, yellow journals, and automatic pianos. No one ever heard of a lynching in Paris, at Newport, or in London. But there are incessant lynchings in the remoter parts of Russia, in the backwoods of Serbia, Bulgaria, and Herzegovina, in Mexico and Nicaragua, and in such barbarous American states as Alabama, Georgia, and South Carolina. The notion that lynching in the South is countenanced by the gentry, or that they take an actual hand in it, is libelous and idiotic. The well-born and well-bred Southerner is no more a savage than any other man of condition. 
He may live among savages, but that no more makes him a savage than an English gentleman is made one by having a place in Wales, or a Russian by living on his estate in the Ukraine. What northern observers mistake for the gentry of the South when they report the participation of leading citizens in a lynching is simply the office-holding and commercial bourgeoisie, the offspring of the poor white trash who sulked at home during the Civil War, robbing the widows and orphans of the soldiers at the front, and so laying the foundations of the present industrial prosperity of the section, i.e. its conversion from a region of large landed estates and urbane life into a region of stinking factories, filthy mining and oil towns, child-killing cotton mills, vociferous chambers of commerce, and other such swineries. It is, of course, a fact that the average lynching party in Mississippi or Alabama is led by the mayor, and that the town judge climbs down from his bench to give it his official support, but it is surely not a fact that these persons are of the line of such earlier public functionaries as Pickens, Troop, and Pettis. On the contrary, they correspond to the lesser sorts of Tammany office-holders, and to the vermin who monopolize the public functions in such cities as Boston and Philadelphia. The gentry, with few exceptions, have been forced out of the public service everywhere south of the Potomac, if not out of politics. The Democratic victory in 1912 flooded all the governmental posts at Washington with Southerners, and they remain in power to this day, and some of them are among the chief officers of the nation. But in the whole vast corps there are, we believe, but ten who would be accepted as gentlemen by Southern standards, and only three of these are in posts of any importance. In the two houses of Congress there is but one. It is thus absurd to drag the gentry of the South, the Bourbons of New England legend, into a discussion of the lynching problem. They represent, in fact, what remains of the only genuine aristocracy ever visible in the United States, and lynching, on the theoretical side, is far too moral a matter ever to engage in aristocracy. The true lynchers are the plain people, and at the bottom of the sport there is nothing more noble than the mob man's chronic and ineradicable poltroonery. Cruel by nature, delighting in sanguinary spectacles, and here brought to hatred of the Negro by the latter's increasing industrial, not political, capitalistic, or social, rivalry, he naturally diverts himself in his moments of musing with visions of what he would do to this or that more if he had the courage. Unluckily, he hasn't, and so he is unable to execute his dream a cappella. If, inflamed by liquor, he attempts it, the more commonly gives him a beating, or even murders him. But what lies beyond his talents as an individual at once becomes feasible when he joins himself with other men in a like situation. This is the genesis of a mob of lynchers. It is composed primarily of a few men with definite grievances, sometimes against the negro lynched, but often against quite different negroes, it is composed secondarily of a large number of fifth-rate men eager for a thrilling show, involving no personal danger. It is composed, in the third place, of a few rabble-rousers and politicians, all of them hot to exhibit themselves before the populace as a moment of public excitement and in an attitude of leadership. It is the second element that gives life to the general impulse. Without its ardent appetite for a rough and shocking spectacle, there would be no lynching. 
its influence is plainly shown by the frequent unintelligibility of the whole proceeding all its indignation over the crime alleged to be punished is an afterthought any crime will answer once its blood is up thus the most characteristic lynchings in the south are not those in which a confessed criminal is done to death for a definite crime but those in which in sheer high spirits some convenient african is taken at random and lynched as the newspapers say on general principles that sort of lynching is the most honest and normal and we are also inclined to think that it is the most enjoyable but the other sort brings moral indignation with it and moral indignation is disagreeable no man can be both indignant and happy but here seeking to throw a feeble beam or two of light into the mental processes of the american proletarian we find ourselves entering upon a discussion that grows narrow and perhaps also dull lynching after all is not an american institution but a peculiarly southern institution and even in the south it will die out as other more seemly recreations are introduced it would be quite easy we believe for any southern community to get rid of it by establishing a good brass band and having concerts every evening it would be even easier to get rid of it by borrowing a few professional scoundrels from the department of justice having them raid the study of the local methodist archdeacon and forthwith trying him publicly with a candidate for governor as prosecuting officer, for seduction under promise of salvation. The trouble down there is not a special viciousness. The southern poor white, taking him by and large, is probably no worse and no better than the anthropoid proletarian of the north. What ails the whole region is philistinism. It has lost its old aristocracy of the soil and has not yet developed an aristocracy of money. The result is that its cultural ideas are set by stupid and unimaginative men, southern equivalents of the retired Iowa steer staffers and grain sharks who pollute Los Angeles, American equivalents of the rich English nonconformists. These men, though they have accumulated wealth, have not yet acquired the capacity to enjoy civilized recreations. Worse, most of them are still so barbarous that they regard such recreations as immoral, the dominating opinion of the South is thus against most of the devices that would diminish lynching by providing substitutes for it. In every southern town, some noisy clown of a Methodist or Presbyterian clergyman exercises a local tyranny. These men are firmly against all divertisements of more cultured regions. They oppose prize-fighting, horse-racing, Sunday baseball, and games of chance. They are bitter prohibitionists. By their incessant vice-crusades, they reduce the romance of sex to furtiveness and piggishness. They know nothing of music or the drama, and view a public library merely as something to be rigorously censored. We are convinced that their ignorant moral enthusiasm is largely to blame for the prevalence of lynching. No doubt they themselves are sneakingly conscious of the fact, or at least aware of it subconsciously for lynching is the only public amusement that they never denounce. Their influence reveals strikingly the readiness of the inferior American to accept ready-made opinions. He seems to be pathetically eager to be told what to think, and he is apparently willing to accept any instructor who takes the trouble to tackle him. This, also, was brilliantly revealed during the late war. 
the powers which controlled the press during that fevered time swayed the populace as they pleased so long as the course of dr wilson was satisfactory to them he was depicted as a second lincoln and the plain people accepted the estimate without question to help reinforce it the country was actually flooded with lithographs showing lincoln and wilson wreathed by the same branch of laurel and copies of the prints got into millions of humble homes but immediately dr wilson gave offence to his superiors he began to be depicted as an idiot and a scoundrel and this judgment promptly displaced the other one in the popular mind the late major general roosevelt was often a victim of that sort of boob bumping a man of mercurial temperament constantly shifting his position on all large public questions he alternately gave great joy and great alarm to the little group of sagaciously willful men which exercises genuine sovereignty over the country and this alternation of emotions showed itself by way of the newspapers and other such body agencies in the vacillation of public opinion the fundamental platitudes of the nation were used both for him and against him and always with immense effect one year he was the last living defender of the liberties fought for by the fathers the next year he was an anarchist roosevelt himself was much annoyed by this unreliability of the mob now and then he sought to overcome it by direct appeals but in the long run he was usually beaten toward the end of his life he resigned himself to a policy of great discretion and so withheld his voice until he was sure what hymn was being lined out the newspapers and press associations of course do not impart the official doctrine of the moment in terms of forthright instructions they get it over, as the phrase is, in the form of delicate suggestions, most of them under cover of the fundamental platitudes aforesaid. Their job is not to inspire and inform public discussion, but simply to colour it, and the task most frequently before them is that of giving a patriotic and virtuous appearance to whatever the proletariat is to believe. They do this, of course, to the tune of deafening protestations of their own honesty and altruism. But there is really no such thing as an honest newspaper in America. If it were set up tomorrow, it would perish within a month. Every journal, however rich and powerful, is the trembling slave of higher powers, some financial, some religious, and some political. It faces a multitude of censorships, all of them very potent. It is censored by the post office, by the Jewish advertisers, by the Catholic Church, by the Methodists, by the Prohibitionists, by the banking oligarchy of its town, and often by even more astounding authorities, including the Sinn Féin. Now and then a newspaper makes a valiant gesture of revolt, but it is only a gesture. There is not a single daily in the United States that would dare to discuss the problem of Jewish immigration honestly. Nine-tenths of them, under the lash of snobbish Jewish advertisers, are even afraid to call a Jew a Jew. Their orders are to call him a Hebrew, which is regarded as sweeter. During the height of the Bolshevist scare, not one American paper ventured to direct attention to the plain and obtrusive fact that the majority of Bolshevists in Russia and Germany, and at least two-thirds of those taken in the United States, were of the faith of Moses, Mendelssohn, and Gimbel. But the Jews are perhaps not the worst. 
the methodists in all save a few big cities exercised a control over the press that is far more rigid and baleful in the anti-saloon league they have developed a machine for terrorizing office-holders and the newspapers that is remarkably effective and they employed it during the long fight for prohibition to throttle all opposition save the most formal in this last case of course the idealists who thus forced the speakeasy upon the country had an easy task for all of the prevailing assumptions and prejudices of the mob were in their favor no doubt it is true as has been alleged that a majority of the voters of the country were against prohibition and would have defeated it as a plebiscite but equally without doubt a majority of them were against the politicians so brutally clubbed by the anti-saloon league and ready to believe anything evil of them and eager to see them manhandled moreover the league had another thing in its favor it was operated by strictly moral men oblivious to any notion of honor thus it advocated and procured the abolition of legalized liquor selling without the slightest compensation to the men who had invested their money in the business under cover of and even at the invitation of the law a form of repudiation and confiscation unheard of in any other civilized country again it got through the constitutional amendment by promising the liquor men to give them one year to dispose of their lawfully accumulated stocks and then broke its promise under cover of alleged war necessity despite the fact that the war was actually over both proceedings so abhorrent to any man of honor failed to arouse any indignation among the plain people on the contrary the plain people viewed them as in some vague way smart and creditable and as in any case thoroughly justified by the superior moral obligation that we have hitherto discussed thus the bubis americanus is led and watched over by zealous men all of them highly skilled at training him in the way that he should think and act the constitution of his country guarantees that he shall be a free man and assumes that he is intelligent but the laws and customs that have grown up under that constitution give the lie to both the guarantee and the assumption it is the fundamental theory of all the more recent american law in fact that the average citizen is half-witted and hence not to be trusted to either his own devices or his own thoughts if there were not regulations against the saloon it seems to say he would get drunk every day dissipate his means undermine his health and beggar his family if there were not postal regulations as to his reading matter he would divide his time between bolshevist literature and pornographic literature and so become at once an anarchist and a guinea-pig if he were not forbidden under heavy penalties to cross a state line with a wench he would be chronically unfaithful to his wife worse if his daughter were not protected by the statutes of the most draconian severity she would succumb to the first Italian she encountered, yield up her person to him, enroll herself upon his staff, and go upon the streets. So runs the course of legislation in this land of free men. We could pile up example upon example, but will defer the business for the present. Perhaps it may be resumed in a work one of us is now engaged upon, a full-length study of the popular mind under the Republic. But that work will take years. End of chapter 6